So we should burn down the forest. Pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to episode 22 of the Humanist Agenda podcast. My name is Kenny. And I'm Rory. And I'm Sherry. So today we have a very special summer episode. We're a trying fun to, episode. We're trying to just keep it light since it's oh, summer. And I don't know if my topic's so light. <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> what did I do? Oh no. <laughs> you're, you're, so, you're supposed to try to make it light. Oh, I, w- I failed. <laughs> in, in, inject some comedy into it. But, uh, okay. So essentially, uh, we're following a, we're doing a review of things that either impact human beings or basically impact the human geological time period. So this time period is uh, called the Anthropocene period. So it's basically a geological period in which human activity dominates the influence on uh, the environment and the climate. So we're going to just pick some topics to talk about and then how it impacts human beings, how it impacts our world. Uh, and basically, let's give it a five-star rating. You know, do we rate it, you know, this impact on human beings? Is it great? Is it not so great? So let's see if we can agree on the ratings based on our topics. Hmm. Sounds interesting. I'm going to have Sherry go. Yeah, my topic doesn't necessarily impact geography as much as you're talking about, but more so humans on a psychological and emotional level. Yeah, but I mean, you know, any other geological time period, this wouldn't really have any impact, right? I mean, it requires human beings. I already know what topic you're about to talk about, but I'll let you introduce (laughs) it. Okay, so... I am an educator, as many of you know, and I thought I would talk about GSAs, the Gay-Straight Alliance. You know what that is. I had no idea. (laughs) I will explain it in a few minutes. I wanted to preface uh, with a bit of a question. So have either of you been in a GSA or had a GSA at your school? I'm too old are you too old (laughs) no gsa i don't think was really a thing like back when i was in high school that my on in my last year of high school it was when the uh i forgot the uh, the person's name but that's when the catholic school board like banned this uh gay couple from going to prom right uh and they made like a musical about it but i'll talk about that it, it was it was that time period uh, so, like, no one really talked about GSAs during that time, and that was, mm. like, big news at that time. And I, I will have to say, I, I I applaud that guy for, you know, pushing the Catholic schools to let him into prom, but he totally stole my thunder because <laughs> I was not out, and I was about, I was going to come out at prom with someone, <laughs> and he totally stole my thunder. <laughs> Because when I went to prom, everyone thought I just copied him and wanted oh, no. to get attention. Oh. I was like, damn oh. it. <laughs> I almost brought a girl to prom, but then decided against it because I knew my school was very religious and I just didn't want to didn't want to deal with it. So I decided not to. Also, the girl I was going to bring was a bit of a flake, so that didn't work out so well. <laughs> what about 
about you, Rory? You're a bit older than me, so I don't I, know if you had a GSA at your school. I can certainly confirm that there was no talk of GSA when I went to high school. It could have been due to the time. It could have been due to the location. I'm from a very small town, as mm. you may know. Mm-hmm. I The whole notion of homosexuality really just exploded to me when I went to university. So that was my introduction to not only many gay friends, but... Uh, just the idea of the oppression of homosexual people. My school also had a problem with gangs, so <laughs> that was more of a concern. Yikes. Oh, no. Oh, my goodness. Where I'm, are you from, Kenny? I'm from Scarborough. <laughs> oh, okay. The Scarb. Yeah, yeah. So my school did have a GSA, and they started it, I think it was my last year there. Um, I remember it was very contentious because we had a lot of like there was an actual religious club at our school and it was a secular public school um, and people we would put up posters in the hallways and people would actually tear down the posters. Yeah, it was not so great. Um, today is much better. And I actually got to uh, volunteer to help out um, as a teacher to supervise the GSA at the school I was working at recently. So it's so, much better. So what do what do people do at these GSA meetings? Like or I mean students get together and what what's really the function of GSAs? Yeah. So a GSA, the Gay Straight Alliance, is an organize organization in schools where LGBT and heterosexual students can come together to provide or promote counseling and support, safety, visibility, education, and advocacy. So they do things like socialize, uh, they find support, they may create and distribute um, some LGBT materials, or they could organize school-wide events, so things like the Trans Day of Remembrance or the Day of Silence. Uh, and they all might also might connect with other schools in the larger community. So they find a, a larger sort of uh, community there for support. Originally, they were created to help students uh, to support each other to confront bullying or sexual harassment, but they have evolved into more advocacy. Uh, so GSAs may advocate for things like gender-neutral bathrooms or more training for teachers on how to degender your language in the classroom, those sorts of things. Uh, so each person who comes to the club may decide to have a certain purpose that they want, and it might be different from everyone else. So they, one person may want to join to uh, support their LGBT friends, so there are heterosexual people that can join. It is a gay-straight alliance. Uh, and others might want to aware, raise awareness of inequality. Um, some may just want emotional support as they're coming out. It is a very pressing time where students are going through a lot of hormones and they want to come out and they want to express themselves. And yeah, so that's sort of the, the short version of what a GSA is. Has there been past like oppositions? Yes. So I'll get into the history of the GSA. Uh, so they began in the late 1980s in Los Angeles and Boston in the United States, uh, where the first documented union was tracing back to 1988, which is really great for the U.S. In Canada, the first GSA was found in 2000. So um, we're a little bit further behind on that, but that's all right. We have a lot that comes into our path as a barrier 
So within Ontario, we have a policy that protects students' rights to form GSAs and allow them to be called a gay-straight alliance. And there's also a policy around how school boards must assist staff in, a, in supporting students who wish to spearhead and participate in GSAs um, or other student-driven initiatives that promote understanding and the development of healthy relationships. However, there's been a lot of bumpy road in terms of getting there uh, because we in Ontario have the Catholic School Board, which is funded publicly. What a great thing to have. Uh, so we they have come out and publicly argued against GSAs. That's the wrong kind of coming out. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> definitely the wrong kind of coming out. Uh, they have argued that GSAs undermine the moral and pastoral authority of the Roman Catholic Church and the guaranteed religious freedom that is granted to Catholic school boards under Section 93 of the Canadian Constitution in 1867, which allowed them to have their own Catholic school board that is funded. Yeah. So Catholic schools were denying students the ability to form GSAs because it went against their fundamental religious freedoms. Uh, so student activists uh, and Queer Ontario, which is a, a group, uh, came together and they called for the Ontario Ministry of Education to enforce the law that I just spoke about. And they persuaded politicians to, de to develop the Accepting Schools Act in 2012. Uh, which legally enables students to create GSAs and they name them as such in all pu publicly funded Ontario schools. So that's kind of the history around it. There has been a lot of contention there, um, which we can talk about when I get to my in the news section, but we can talk about why it's necessary first. Because a lot of people might say... Um, you know, gay, street, gay people have it so easy now. They have marriage. They have everything they want. People aren't against them and stuff like that. But it's really not necessarily the case. As an educator, I've been in schools that have every, – every school has some students that maybe use gay as a slur or um, stuff like that. And it's still happening. Uh, not quite as much, I feel like. I feel like when, you know – the three of us were younger. It happened quite frequently. And things have changed a bit. But uh, it is still happening. The issue of tearing down posters for GSA is still an issue. It was an issue in the school that I worked at where I supervised the GSA. So things are still happening. So, um, I mean, clearly it's not fully accepted by everyone. If people are tearing down posters, you have um, the Catholic school board going against the development or creation of GSAs. So clearly there's something here in terms of lack of acceptance, right? Yeah. Yeah. And the education system needs to provide um, a diverse curricula and pedagogy. So GSAs are instrumental in helping create that um, and encourage that as well. And it has been shown that when there is inclusive language or inclusive uh, topics in classrooms. Um, schools have a better school environment and people are more positive towards LGBT people. 
Um, so it is people feel safer at schools. Um, there's less victimization. There's more supportive teachers and, and a greater sense of belonging. And that's sort of the environment that schools want to encourage. So schools with GSAs are really important to the school culture. So, however, Catholic schools, they often avoid queer topics due to real or perceived pushback from school administrators or school boards, especially because they believe that's what the Catholic Church is, is pushing on them. So even if they don't believe that, they may avoid talking about it because, you know, the Catholic Church is this big uh, umbrella of scary. Do they do like sex education? Are they just afraid of talking about sex? Or is this clearly they've isolated, you know, anything about gays or lesbians are is basically off topic? Well, they have the mandated, they are mandated to follow the curriculum provided by the the Ministry of Education in Ontario. So what that is, there is a sex ed curriculum. And when we had Kathleen Wynne, the sex ed curriculum was updated so that it included more LGB topics, uh, gender awareness and stuff like that. However, when we got Ford, he took all of that away. So before, Catholic schools would have been mandated to talk about certain topics. However, now, because of the religious pushback and and influence on Ford, it has been taken away. So they would just avoid talking about it. It's very sad. Fun I feel topic. Like the, I, I feel like, <laughs> do they not realize it's all over TV? Like, kids know about gays and lesbians. TV and the internet. I mean, exactly. it's not like we don't live in an information age these days and people can find out more about topics. There's almost, I think it's called the... Uh, the Streisand effect, when you try to hide information about something, it becomes more appealing that people want to learn more about it because they know you're concealing it from them. But there is so much negative information about True. LGBT people True. that if you go on the internet to find information, you'll get a mixture of both. So it's not necessarily positive. You want them to receive this information in a positive environment Absolutely. and an educated environment. Yeah. Do we want to talk about some of the news stories? Because it does relate on to why we need GSAs. So this is going to be the depressing part of this segment, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> We're going to recover from this, right? No. I hope so. I hope so. <laughs> oh, boy. Are we in for okay. something else? <laughs> Let's go down the rabbit hole. Okay. So Alberta has been in the news recently. I don't know if either of you heard about it. Yes, I have. Yeah. So let's talk about the history of Alberta. Um, originally, there was a law that was brought about in 2017 where the administration or teachers could not contact parents of a child who joins a GSA. Seems reasonable. It took until 2017 to get this law passed. Uh, but it also stated that principals and administration must immediately work towards creating a GSA for students that ask for one. In Ontario, we have a similar policy of GSAs are student driven. So a teacher can't start a GSA without a student coming forward to them and saying, I want a GSA. So it, it requires the students to come forward, which has its pros and cons, obviously, but that's sort of, you know, how it is um, and how it was in Alberta. So prior to this 2017 law, there were many reported incidents of schools who refused to create one by indefinitely delaying the creation of the club. Um, so they would delay creating it. They 
they have it as a law that they have to create one, but if you can delay creating one until the student has graduated, then you don't need to create one, right? There's no What a reason. loophole. <laughs> right? Um, yeah. So recently, within the last week or so, uh, the conservatives has, have successfully repealed the law to an, that was enacted in 2017. So now... Teachers and administration can report students who join GSAs and can indefinitely delay the creation of that GSA club. Fun times. So, Couldn't the students make some kind of like, I don't know, a musical appreciation club and yeah, just, but... just use it as a pseudo... As a Trojan cover. horse? As, <laughs> as a cover. They could, but... Then they're not being their authentic selves. And that's what is the point of that, right? The point is that we would be allowed to call it a GSA. And and the issue that Alberta has had is that they didn't want to allow clubs that were called the Gay-Straight Alliance. They wanted to say, oh, you could just make it, you know, a humanitarian club or something like that. And it really doesn't allow the students to express themselves in the way they want to. Um, So a name does make a difference. Yeah. Uh, Some of the reasoning that I learned about that um, conservatives have put forward as to why they should be allowed to contact parents is if a student is at risk of self-harm and they would, I guess, include that the student is attending a GSA club, which is bizarre, but okay, because they are allowed to contact parents if there is a self-harm risk. But I think that the religious right is making the argument that there is a self-harm risk because of the GSA or their their gay identity. When they should probably look in the mirror and see, I'm really the cause of suicides. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, Alberta has been... Alberta is so conservative. Um, they have had a lot of trouble enacting their law that was in 2017, They had about, in 2018, I believe it was, they had about uh, 28 schools that were in non-compliance for this law. So they had to post, the compliance that they needed was just to post information about GSAs on their school website. And there were like 28 religious schools uh, that were not doing that. And these religious schools or charter schools, they're 70% funded by the province. So 70% of your taxes in Alberta are going towards... Or not, 70% of your, like, education taxes are going towards these schools that don't support GSAs. And also, in 2017-2018, there was a principal who was suspended uh, for refusing to allow a GSA at his Catholic school. Um, He was reinstated after nine months as a teacher at that school. But it's still happening, and it still happens after the law was enacted. So there's clearly a need for better laws around this better laws are better enforcement mm-hmm. stiffer penalties to violators for sure um also in may of this year thames valley uh district school board which is our london school board uh along with school boards across ontario flew the pride flag on the international day against homophobia transphobia and biphobia however the catholic school board which is separate from our public school board, but is still publicly funded, uh, in our region and many others, said no and refused to fly the flag. And sh- and flying the flag, it's a show of 
equity and inclusion and it shows your students that they are valued. And I understand saying like, oh, it's just a flag and whatever, but it's not just a flag. It's it's about, it's a statement showing your inclusion. There was also the issue that Kenny brought up uh, last year. Uh, the Thames Valley District School Board and the Catholic School Board p- pulled their funding from a play called Prom Queen, which was a musical. Now, typically, the school boards fund the musical uh, that happens every year. So the high school play gets funded by the school boards, and it's uh, completely um, cast with high school students. Uh, however, because the play featured a person named Mark Hall, which is a true story from 2002 about a boy who legally successfully fought the school board, which was banning him from taking his boyfriend to prom. Ugh. Right? <laughs> just kidding. I know. I know you're not happy with this story, Kenny, because they took your thunder. <laughs> I'm just kidding. But positive note, if I could bring any positive note to this, was that the London community came together on a GoFundMe page and they raised more funding than what the plane needed or more funding than what the school boards provided. So they didn't even need the school boards, um, which was great. The Thames Valley District School Board did reinstate their funding after this controversy. Who knows why? Maybe it was to save face or whatever. Um, But uh, yeah, because the school board said the play contained inappropriate language and didn't show adults, in particular a priest, teacher, and a principal, in a positive light. Um, and they said it had nothing to do with the gay content. <laughs> I have some insider information that I will tell you after this recording. <laughs> I mean, do we believe it had nothing to do with the gay content? And I don't know. But the, the Catholic school board did not reinstate their funding, which is very No surprise there, No, no surprise. But it's, you know what? It's so sad. And it brings you back to this this idea that we are publicly funding a Catholic school board when we shouldn't be because they go against the values of Canada. The inclusivity, the diversity, all of that. Like, I feel like those are Canadian values and we shouldn't we shouldn't be funding a school board that that doesn't value those things. Okay, so how do we how do we stop this? Stop this funding. Stop the funding? <laughs> yeah, to the Catholic School Board. Oh, stop the funding. Oh gosh. We would have to as Ontario instate some laws um because of the law or the law that I told you about earlier where um Catholic school boards are allowed to be created in Ontario. Um, we would need to go into the Constitution and make changes. Now, other provinces have done this, so it's not yeah, impossible. Exactly. There's precedent because other yes. provinces have, have done this. Yes. Which which ones have? Do you remember? Uh, if you give me a second. <laughs> to retrieve something. <laughs> <laughs> to retrieve my phone and iPad. I'm not super careful with this thing. I apologize. Sherry was a little too excited and threw her <gasps> iPad to, against the so wall. Excited. <laughs> I get so excited about these sorts of things. I'm so passionate because I'm an educator. It's really something that I'm passionate about. I mean, I'm not allowed to teach in the Catholic school board because I am not Catholic. I would have needed like a cath- a letter from a Catholic priest that I attend Catholic churches. You're a deviant. That's yeah. why, Can you right? get like a 
a Catholic equivalency letter from someone. Like, he's Catholic or she's Catholic enough. Maybe it's like a petition. You need like 10 signatures from yeah, Catholics. Yeah, yeah. Is there a loophole that we can exploit here? There is a loophole, I think, where I could have taken a world religions minor or something like that where I could oh. teach in a Catholic school. But why would I want to teach in a school that doesn't believe in my yeah, sexuality and would, um, I don't know, would open me up to such criticisms? Like this is it's. It's insane that I I am losing out on work because of a a school board that doesn't support me. And we live in Canada where you're not allowed to be yeah, they're, discriminated they're against. They're just afraid you'll spread the gay. So Yeah. First it's the frogs and then the, the children. It starts next. with the frogs. <laughs> All right. So currently there are six of the thirteen provinces and territories that still allow faith-based school boards to be supported with tax money. So Alberta, Ontario, Quebec, Saskatchewan, Northwest Territories, and Yukon to grade nine only, I guess, for Yukon. Uh, 1997, Newfoundland and Labrador voted to end the denominational school system, which is really great. I mean, they are a very religious province, so I'm shocked that they have done it before we have... Yeah. Well, one day, maybe. One day. Would you like my star rating for this? Yes. So, GSA? GSA, five stars. Catholic school board, negative five. (laughs) (laughs) It's only a a one to five scale, so. Also, Alberta. Oh, if it's a one to five, fine. Then I will give it one. Alberta gets one star because they have GSAs. However, this has opened them up to... There's so much controversy, so many kids that are going to be left in the dust because they'll be too afraid to join GSAs. Yeah, I just... Do you agree? Five star? I'm a bit unclear about the five star rating. How do we show... Is low stars negative and high stars is positive? It's only one to five. You get to pick one to five. So one star is is the lowest. very lowest you can do. Five stars is the highest. For five stars, I would give GSAs five stars because I think they are very beneficial to... When you say Alberta, are you just talking about the whole province? <laughs> <laughs> the Alberta conservatives. <laughs> okay. Because I feel like Alberta is a province. I wouldn't give it one star. <laughs> It's quite beautiful. <laughs> I, it is. No, I'm not. I'm not hating on Alberta. They are a beautiful country, but province. Pro, sorry, they are a beautiful province, but I just don't think that the conservatives are welcome in this country. Get out, yeah. please. I'd give GSAs five stars. Of course. I mean, I, I'm right there with you. As long as five stars, and this is what I was trying to get at, because there's positive as well as positive, negative, and then there's impact low and high. So. You're overthinking this. <laughs> five stars is good. Five stars on the positive side for GSAs. Exactly. Absolutely. <laughs> Thank you, Rory. We don't need to make a matrix and figure out impact. It's already versus... a matrix. You're just not acknowledging the matrix. Okay. Do you want to go next, Rory? Sure. I'll talk to everyone a little bit about uh, a topic I did some research on back when I was doing my master's work at Western University. And that's ethical food consumption. And I was inspired by an author named Michael Pollan, who wrote a book in 2006 called The Omnivore's Dilemma. And he was trying to outline the problems with an industrial food system and how we can be more ethical food consumers. 
So to start off with, I guess I should define what ethics I'm talking about. And mainly it's just to avoid harms to humans and avoid harm to the environment. And in terms of harms, a lot of the negative aspects of our current food system come from industrial farming and specifically the use of monocultures. Now, what a monoculture is, is it's the use of large expanses of land for growing only a single crop. And typically that's going to be some kind of industrial food crop like corn, wheat, or soybeans, something that can be stored for a really long time and broken down into many different products. So why is that an environmental problem? Well, I'm just going to continue with the environmental problems. I got a little confused there for a second in my notes. Uh, first off, aggressive deforestation is required for monocultures to be put in place. And uh, that results in a lot of soil erosion because you're not cycling crops properly. You're depleting the nitrogen in the soil. And this also has international impacts because we get a lot of our food from developing nations. And the best soil comes from forest lands. And so the easiest solution that they see to grow food for us is to begin clear-cutting these large expanses of forest to make way for these monoculture industrial crops. So lost biodiversity, that's also another big problem that comes out of this because when you're growing only, say, a specific high-yield version of a corn crop, you're not allowing for it to evolve over time the same way that uh, pests and diseases are evolving. And so you become a lot more dependent on chemicals to help you fight off pests and diseases for these crops because they're not allowed to naturally evolve the way they should be. And that brings me to talking a little bit about the uh, the old target of a lot of ire for pesticides, and that's Monsanto, and specifically their uh, old pesticide Roundup, which has been linked to the death of bees, colony collapse disorder, all that stuff that you may or may not have heard of in the past. And of course, there's the problem of downward leaching of pesticides into the soil, and if that reaches the groundwater, then you risk water contamination, and we just end up directly consuming dangerous chemicals. And that was actually the case in Suffolk County, New York, back in 1979. It's the most famous example that I can think of where pesticides did leach into their groundwater and ended up poisoning the town folk. A good movie to watch is Food, Inc. I learned a lot about Monsantos and how they use their Roundup-ready product um, and how their Roundup doesn't kill the... Uh, the crop that is produced by them that is called the Roundup crop. Uh, so it, it doesn't kill that crop, but you have to purchase the Roundup crop from them. So they're getting this really weird conglomerate. You're not allowed to to regenerate those seeds, so mm -hmm. you can't use them past the season you purchase them in. You can't um, clone them. You can't um, so do anything I'm like that. I, I'm going to be the dissenter here because uh -oh. I'm actually very, very pro Monsanto. Are you now? Yes. So Interesting. I, I, I would like to maybe provide a different perspective here. Um, so maybe one of the topics you mentioned in terms of like uh, Roundup uh, pesticide uh, causing harm to bees, etc. So I think we have to maybe understand what Roundup actually is. Roundup is glyphosate. It's a uh, it's a pesticide, but it only really in, uh, impacts 
plants. So it's not a insecticide. All it does is actually kills plants. And uh, when you kind of look at it, there's a, there's a scale in terms of like toxicity. It's called the LD50 or LD10, I can't remember. But anyways, it's basically the, uh, uh, the measurement of toxicity of a compound. And pretty much, you know, every compound you have in the world that you ingest, there's a certain limit where if you drink too much or eat too much, you will die. So coffee, you know, if you drink too much coffee, you will die. Water, water also has, has an LD50 as well, because if you dr uh, drink too much water, you can also die. So every, every element in the world, there's like this certain toxicity where if you ingest too much, you just die, At which makes one, sense, right? Like you, you are just solely ingesting the water. Exactly, product. exactly. Okay. So, um, so I'm sure you might be able to guess, but I'm going to ask a question, which has a higher LD50, which is more lethal, coffee, caffeine? or glyphosate? I think this is a trick question. It is a trick question because <laughs> it is caffeine. Caffeine's actually more on the toxicity scale, more. But I think when you look at uh, why Roundup exists, why glyphosate ex exists, it's really uh, because of production. I mean, farmers, they want higher yields, so they're trying to kill plants that don't have this special gene in corn that prevents it from that has a resistance to glyphosate so uh this uh when you kind of also look at how much you would spray in terms of glyphosate it's actually really tiny like the quantity and you, farmers usually spray maybe twice a year usually uh at the beginning uh once uh their seeds have started sprouting and then near the middle before they kind of harvest they gotta like spray again to uh, let the corn grow to its final length so when it kind of comes to, you know, whether farmers have a choice, things like that, I think we have to realize farmers get to choose who they want to buy seeds from. Monsanto is not the only company. So, mm. I mean, so... It may be a bit contentious on that with how much choice farmers actually have as to who they get their seeds from. Well, I mean, if they want higher yields, higher productivity, they're going to likely pick a Roundup-ready crop, Right. I mean, when you kind of look at the farmers, I mean, you know, I'm friends with farmers and they choose to use Roundup because it's, it works and they have to make a living and to compete, right? So I, I think there's a question of, okay, is it safe? It's pretty safe. I mean, when every study out there on Roundup, it's totally, totally safe. The only, there's only literally one study in the entire world that has shown uh, glyphosate is uh, causes cancer, and it's the only study that keeps sure, getting repeated but, over and you over. Know, moving us back to the to the bees for a second, the link so, seems to be there between the use of herbicides, pesticides, and colony collapse disorder. So, what is it? Is it just that the the plants that the bees need are being killed off, or why actually, is this safe chemical causing I so much harm? I think you should actually look up colony collapse because uh, I don't think the uh, survival rate of bees have kind of fluctuated up and down. I would say maybe there's certain pesticides that can kill bees like uh, neonics that get applied to, um, to crops. Sure, and but, I, I'm not trying to imply that yeah. but, Monsanto but, and Roundup are a catch-all. Exactly. But, but remember, I mean, Roundup is only impacts plants. Like that's the only thing it does. So 
uh, I think we just have to keep that in mind in terms of, okay, it only impacts plants, but they're, I, it's not necessarily going to like wipe out bees because glyphosate doesn't harm animals. It's only plants. It's been designed that way. Mm, I'm unconvinced, but I, I respect that you've brought a new insight to this that I hadn't accounted well, for. In... Well, if you don't believe me, there is a documentary that uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson, Bill, uh, the science guy, Bill Nye. Bill Nye. I mean, they, they were in it. They talked about GMOs, Roundup. And yeah, I mean, it's a different perspective to like Food Inc. Because so it's, Food Inc. has a per- certain perspective. Uh, I can look up this uh, other documentary, um, but and I'll put in a show notes. But I mean, the other documentary, you have, you know, prominent scientists like Neil deGrasse Tyson. I, I mean, all these trusted people that we would rely on telling us why GMOs are safe, why it's uh, potentially helpful for climate change because it solves Even a lot of problems. Even if the use of a genetically modified crop resulted in a loss of biodiversity, they're claiming that is safe? No, nope, uh, because, uh, well, so biodiversity, we also have to think about where does all of our food come from? None of our food that we eat today comes from nature. We've always engineered everything we've eaten. Like when you look at broccoli, broccoli doesn't exist in nature. Sure. The variety of banana that we eat does not grow naturally anymore. Exactly. I mean, nothing, everything that we eat is technically a genetically modified food because we have spent decades or sorry, centuries kind of modifying it over and over again. So I would, I would grant you that there's definitely some concern when, with monoculture and having pests evolve to kind of. Um, with the loss of biodiversity is still a present threat. It's a present threat, but I would say with GMO, it's less of a concern because we're able to engineer uh, countermeasures against pests. Well, if it's less of a concern because we're seeking out synthetic ways to combat but it, it doesn't. It doesn't have to be synthetic. I mean, it, so uh, for example, every papaya that you would get from Hawaii, for example. It's genetically modified because there was a virus that was attacking the entire crop. It would have wiped out papaya off of the off of Hawaii if they did not genetically modify the papaya. So, papaya itself, especially from Hawaii, there's every all of it is genetically modified because without it, you we would never have papaya ever again. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, the same threat is with bananas as well. Banana is kind of like one single species. Yeah, that's, it, it's on the cusp if you're exactly. doing like endangered species lists. Exactly. And... So uh, so they're engineering like bananas and uh, plantains to resist certain diseases in Africa right now. Uh, another popular one is golden rice. So uh, vitamin A deficiencies, a big issue, like 500,000 children go blind every year because of vitamin A deficiencies. So they've engineered vitamin A into rice. And right now, Greenpeace is against GMOs and have been trying to shut down this golden rice project. Whereas you have Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, you have like over 100 Nobel laureates writing a letter to Greenpeace to tell them to stop because they need to get this engineered rice into uh, the community to 
prevent blindness and death from all these children. Mm -hmm. I feel like there's an unnecessary fear around consuming GMOs. And I don't know why that is necessarily because if like you've you've probably eaten a GMO in your lifetime, if you've eaten seedless watermelons or whatever, because we have been doing it for so long, but we've been sort of using plants to to, I guess, mate with other plants so that they can create I, a I new think, plant. Yeah, I think there's multiple arguments because there's the GMO argument. And then there is an I think there is a valid point around like uh, sustainability, like you're when you talk about monoculture, I mean, having GMO doesn't really solve that problem in terms of uh, uh, removing nutrients from the soil. They, I mean, GMO is not going to solve that. So there's solutions around uh, where you can maybe like rotate co- uh, crops, uh, plant crops more efficiently in terms of uh, how uh, in terms of the seasons, so that you don't have to deforest and get more deplete land. and rely more exactly. on fertilizers and exactly things like that. i mean like i think there's definitely an argument in terms of like having to rely on artificial fertilizers having to i mean phosphorus for example is not renewable like once phosphorus gets into the water it kind of disappears and uh, you, it's really hard to get back into the ground so i think there's definitely arguments around that but i for me i would say i'm pretty pro gmo and i think there's some valid uh, solutions that we can solve with GMO and controlled pesticides to an extent. I mean, I, I, I would agree you can't just like spray everything to death, but sure. Uh, but I think that there's there's a method of at least optimizing the use of pesticides, optimizing the use of GMO, uh, and there's there's a play. It, it doesn't negate the fact that we have uh, organic foods, which is perfectly fine, and you could have organic foods and conventional foods kind of uh, co-mingling. And we have to realize that organic foods have some consequences because the pesticides used in organic foods tend to have a higher lethality than traditional pesticides as well. Mm-hmm. So so I think I'll pass the documentary on, but I mean, the, the documentary also has this uh, couple. One of them's a conventional farmer, the other one's an organic farmer, and you can kind of just... I mean, they live together. They kind of understand the differences between the two types of farming and why they complement each other. I really do appreciate that you've brought this perspective in because I I don't think it's a good idea to ever paint with too broad of a stroke and say all GMOs are bad or good. I mean, certainly you've brought to light a lot of the more positive things that we can do with GMOs. Of course, on the negative side, you've got the idea of companies creating suicide gene seeds that are going to self-terminate after one use and force the farmer to repurchase everything. You know, there's a dark side to this too. But in terms of just saying all GMO is bad, all GMO is good, can't, we have to get away from that. We have to acknowledge that there's a large gray area. Maybe something a little less gray that I'm also... Uh, covering in this and kind of a byproduct of monocultures is, you know, we grow a lot of these crops so we can use them as feed for animals that we keep in what is called a concentrated animal feeding operation or a CAFO. Now, I don't know how much you know about CAFOs, but any defenses that you can conjure to, uh, nope. Other, I mean, meat takes up so much resources to make. I mean, the amount of water and, uh, Corn, for example, to feed an animal is just when you kind of look at it from a even from a unit process standpoint, it's it's almost like a waste of resources because you're taking so many calories from the plant. That's absolutely and then what it extracting is. 
a little bit of those calories to then uh, be ingested in the meat. So, I mean, the, the calorie balance is kind of a little off there. The preference for meat consumption just causes such a loss of energy between raising these cattle and then, of course, there's a, not even mentioning the abhorrent conditions that these animals are made to live in. But then by the time it reaches your, your plate, it's gone through becoming an animal, becoming a slaughtered animal, being transported to wherever it needs to go. It's so wasteful. Huge carbon footprint. Exactly. But we'll move a little bit away from environment and target the other ethical aspect that I wanted to talk about, which is uh, how industrial farming is hurting people specifically and directly. And the most direct thing is it means we have a diet that consists principally of corn, wheat, soybeans, rice, milk, of course, beef and chicken, uh, beer and peanut butter. Did you say beer? Beer was among the list of uh, things that we principally consume. Yes, indeed. I'm not surprised, are you? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I'm not a drinker, so I'm just like, what? (laughs) Oh, I have a a huge industry. (laughs) (laughs) And as a Canadian, surely you acknowledge the importance of beer to our culture and consumptive habits. (laughs) Only maple syrup. I actually, on a side note, I went on a beer and wine tour uh, for a little bachelorette that somebody had, and um, I went to a brewery that was completely self-contained, so all of their waste is waste is reused on the farm. I found that really interesting. I thought that was a great way, I think, that we should support these um, smaller breweries for their environmental impact. Absolutely. There has to be a way to acknowledge companies that are doing the right thing, and it deserves lots of public attention when they are. I almost forgot. I'm going to wheel us back a tiny bit because I had a couple of fun questions that I was going to ask just to see if you guys know the answer. Uh, If you had to guess, what would you say is the largest industrial crop grown in the world? Corn. Soy. It is, in fact, sugarcane. That makes sense, actually. That makes sense. Corn pops into your head. I mean, especially since it's, you know, multiple uses, both as direct edible and as high fructose corn syrup. And wait, uh, and is it sugar cane or sugar beets? Sugar cane. Okay. It's the largest industrial crop in the world. I would have thought corn because corn goes into everything now. But our sugar industry is huge. <laughs> that's yeah. the thing compared to other yeah, foods. Yeah, that's true. But I don't know. I found out that corn goes into things that are non, like not edible. So like I heard batteries. Um, well, corn, a lot of it goes into like animal feed. Like that, yeah. that's that's the. There's that's a the very good chance yeah. that corn is number two. If I had to guess, I don't have it written in my notes. Yeah, it's animal feed, and maybe a little bit goes into like ethanol production, but mostly it's like animal feed. Yeah, that's true. My second question is, if you had to guess which crop receives the most government subsidies out of any crop? Soy? (laughs) I'm saying wheat. Should have stuck to your guns. It's corn receives the most. I was going to say corn, and then I was like, no, I used that one the last time. I know. I was like, can't be that easy. You sabotaged yourself. (laughs) Well, I thought maybe wheat because um, bread gets subsidized. Yeah, I didn't know. I can see that happening as well. I mean, to me, like all the primary crops, it's subsidized. There's no way it costs this much to, yeah, to make. Exactly, exactly. 
So now we're going to return back to people a little bit and away from the growing of crops. So a lot of the problem comes from this mismatch we have. We have a low cost of high calorie products because we're getting them all from things like corn, very calorie intensive things. And then we have little opportunity to spend all that extra energy given our current lifestyle and the amount of time constraint that we have to say, go to the gym or take a walk or get in enough physical activity to burn off all these extra calories. And so enter the obesity epidemic and enter all kinds of negative health impacts that are all resulting from the fact that industrial high calorie food is just so cheap. And that also brings in the economic inequality aspect because cheap food is most appealing to the people who have fewest economic resources. They're also the people most likely to be stuck behind a counter, checking out your food items or doing other minimum wage jobs. It's expensive to eat healthy. Exactly. Exactly. So. And it's difficult even to get the knowledge to eat healthy. Like I find that's where I'm maybe lacking most is, is how do I eat the healthiest? What foods should I be combining? The food guide is always changing. Um, yeah. And I think that especially, especially if you're a minimum wage worker, when do you find the time to research what foods are proper for you? knowledge, time, and economic resources, all these things that a certain class of people are at a deficit in. It's not only supporting the current structure of our industrial food system, but it's preventing them from reaching for that healthier lifestyle. Which is, of course, maybe where you can kind of see the way that ethical food consumption provided me with, a, I guess, a, a bridge over to supporting basic income. Because I see, first and foremost, the need for, if we're going to rely on consumer democracy to be the way that we get people to live a healthier lifestyle or consume products that are made more ethically by better producers, people need the resources to be able to make a choice as opposed to always reaching for the only accessible product to them. I just thought that was a cool way to get a plug in for basic income in this fun summer podcast. <laughs> freedom dividend. Don't forget. The freedom <laughs> dividends return. Mm-hmm. So the, basically freedom dividends will help solve this food issue. They can definitely go a long way to help. I mean, they're not guaranteed to be a solution because the idea of a freedom dividend is preserving the freedom to choose whatever you want. And a lot of, Habits have no yeah. but gives, built up in terms it gives of gives people this more kind of food. options. I mean, given yes. the fact that healthy food is expensive, and you know, when I uh, if I need to go get something quick to eat, you know, I have McDonald's, I have freshy salads, and it's one when you kind of look at the prices, you're just like, well, <laughs> that's right. So room for experimenting at the very least will be gained by using freedom dividends. Also at the grocery store, I feel like. So if you're going to the lower end grocery stores like a Freshco or something like that, your fruit and your produce is um, a lot, I think, a lot older than if you went to somewhere like Sobeys where I feel like they try and get the freshest produce because they're not going to sell anything that's not fresh, right? So I feel, I feel like having the money to maybe spend at a grocery store that has fresher produce is really important as well. I mean, it's, it's also the aesthetics. It might, I mean, food might be fresh, for example, and like no frills, but they do pay a certain price for the aesthetics of the food. 
a deformed pepper is more likely to go to a no frill mm -hmm. versus a sun ripe where they all of their peppers are just perfect even with no nutritional difference in exactly. pepper a and pepper b but yeah. i mean I, I i can i mean there's we we like to look at food that looks good and we want to buy food that looks good so i can understand why someone if they see something that looks a little not perfect in terms of the shape or color i mean they're not likely to buy it mm -hmm. yeah so. i do the same thing in my supermarket i I will pick up and put down several uh, produce products before I just settle on the right one. I think there's also something to say be said for access to local foods as well. So fruits and vegetables that are local, it may cost more to get to the farms. So gas money or having to shop at somewhere like Sunripe that sells more local um, but you know, the other issue with us living in Canada is in the wintertime, we're never going to get yeah. local fresh food, yeah. right? Everything. Local hothouse is about the best we're going to get when it comes to wintertime. Yeah. So, I mean, that's a downside to living in Canada. All In the winter, pretty much half of the year, our fresh foods have to be shipped all the way mm -hmm. from Mexico. Mm -hmm. well, I have one more fun question that I can... Uh, give you guys before I wrap up my ethical foods topic and we throw a, a five-star rating or whatever star you feel is appropriate. <laughs> um, out of the following food labels, if you had to guess, which would you say is regulated by law? If a food label says natural, if a food label says organic, or if a food label says real? Real. You think real is or isn't regulated by is law? Is regulated. Is regulated. Hmm. Uh, I think, um, I don't know. Sorry, what were they again? Uh... <laughs> what, are, what are the options? <laughs> your, my brain is dead. Your options for uh, food labels that are regulated by our government, mm -hmm. natural, organic, or real? Yeah, I'm going to say real as well. It's... Kind of funny. Two out of three were correct, and you both picked the only unregulated <laughs> word. <laughs> there is no regulation on the word real. Natural really? and organic both was, have yeah. a set of rules that you have to follow to put that on your food product. I didn't know that any of them would have been regulated necessarily. Most people feel put, organic. Like, real is. TM. I, I, I actually just did process of elimination because I felt like the other two, that can't be regulated. <laughs> Natural kind of surprised me that there's any regulation for natural because it feels like a very wishy-washy What's term. natural? Yeah, yeah, what is natural? But then the same could also be asked, what is real? There's real fruit gummies out there, my friend. To be honest, I didn't choose organic because I thought it was a trick question. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I always think these questions are tricks so that I confuse myself. <laughs> I'm more straightforward than that, I guess, so, Sherry. So <laughs> how, how are you going to rate this? So you're, What are we rating? Exactly. What aspect are we actually rating? Are, are we bringing the matrix back out about <laughs> no, rating it? <laughs> no. We're, we have to keep this simple for people. Simple and fun. What aspect will you be rating? I guess if I were to ask you, how important is it to you to consume food ethically? How much does it factor in your mind? How many stars does that rate? in your mental process at the grocery store? For me personally, sure. it would be right in the middle, three. Fair. 
Fair. Are we talking a realistic number? Like when I go to the grocery store, I'm definitely thinking about if ethics. If you or I'm don't feel not. like divulging this personal information, you can make a more general, <laughs> broad spectrum comment on the state of Canadian food consumption. I would, you know what? I'm going to say three as well in the middle, or two point five because that's halfway. Because sometimes I think about ethics and I really try and buy local, but then other times it's like I need something for dinner tonight and I need something that I can just pick up really quick. And I, I can't say that I do anything more than that. So given the average rating of 3 and 2.5, I'm going to put myself also at a 3 for how conscientious I am about what I purchase at the store and what I consume ultimately. Yeah. I mean, it, it passes my... I mean, it jumps into my brain when mm. I buy food, but I, I think it goes back to... I mean, there's an aspect of convenience that sometimes it's hard to avoid. And I think we just have to be a little bit realistic. We do live very busy lives it's kind of the nature of our society now and uh there's certain things that we can't avoid i feel like it would be disingenuous of me to say a five when i still walk down to my food basics as opposed to take buses downtown to go to the local farmer's markets so i drive to my local farmer's market so i'm not so ethical (laughs) (laughs) trade one for another a sherry So the the documentary I mentioned is called uh, Food Evolution. So uh, narrated by Neil deGrasse Tyson. I will be curious to to look that up and make sure that they aren't failing to see the forest for a specific tree. Because if there is a certain... I think it's pretty balanced. Like it's a pretty balanced documentary, Mm -hmm. in my opinion. They definitely go through um, the topic pretty in depth. I'm coming at it as as a little bit skeptical, so be interesting yep okay okay for my topic uh or my subject i i I will be quick so uh my subject is about uh emboma americana (laughs) have you heard of that before (laughs) never (laughs) so anyways this uh this creature is found in the eastern u.s and mexico it's about three millimeters wide by creature we mean like buck Yes. So this oh, is a, oh, a species of insect that we were talking the, about. It's a it's actually an arachnid. So arachnid. <gasps> oh, even yes. worse. So this. Uh, oh no. Why are you bringing the, this to our lighthearted the... <laughs> summer conversation? I mean, we haven't. Been <laughs> it is. It is the summer, and this thing is everywhere. Oh, so no. this this uh, creature is called the lone star tick. Have you heard of the, I the lone star tick? Because I have dogs. Oh yes. yes. You should is definitely this, know about the lone star. Is this tick. the tick that makes? You allergic to red meat? Yes. I saw that in the news. Yes. So this this tick lays about 5,000 eggs, one female, 5,000 eggs, after it has a blood meal. Can you believe that? 5,000. How long does it take for them to to lay these eggs? Is it just pretty much instantaneous? Pretty much 5,000 all at once. So a blood meal and then it just shoots out. Exactly. Pretty much. Terrifying. Uh, exactly. So the bug world is terrifying. So already this summer, it's been found in London, Ontario, and it's not native to London, Ontario. It's not native to Canada. Like it's supposed to be south of us. How did they get so, here? So they got here because of birds and the combination of the weather. It's warming up, right? So I mean, what what I find really fascinating about this tick is because. It can cause this meat allergy. So this meat allergy is called uh, alpha gal uh, allergy. So there's a 
sugar that's found in mammals. And it so happens to also be found in this tick. And when the tick bites you and its uh, saliva gets into your bloodstream, your body reacts negatively to it. So your body pumps a lot of uh, antibodies to try to fight it. And unfortunately, your body does not really differentiate tick alpha-gal versus any other alpha-gal that you might ingest. So the problem is, let's say you were bitten by this tick and you happen to develop this allergy. Anytime you eat any mammal meat, so it could be pork, it could be beef, within a few hours, you will get a very severe allergic reaction where like your airways could close and you could you could die. Like this is pretty serious. So, I mean, it's it's crazy. Maybe this is another reason why you should become a vegan or a vegetarian. I was going to ask, would a, a full-fledged vegetarian or vegan just go about their daily life and never have any idea that they, they would have, contracted this? Exactly. They would have no idea they even had this. They could just <laughs> live No up. other adverse health effects, just red meat becomes deadly. Exactly. Uh, mammal meat, to be specific. So pork, uh, beef. What uh, about animal products? So like gelatin and... Uh, I would imagine you would still be, you could react if the alpha gal is still in there. But fortunately, I mean, you could eat fish or chicken. That's still okay, but still. This is like a corrective disease that people could be acquiring <laughs> to become better food consumers. Mother Nature just Sorry. stepped in and said, you're I, going to I shouldn't all be say vegetarian that. now. You have all screwed up this world. Yeah. So, I mean, to me, I mean, this is this is kind of crazy because people in the past, didn't actually realize this was the case. I mean, it's not, uh, let's say, 100% proven, but the, there is quite a bit of correlation between when someone develops this allergy and then when you kind of look through their history, have they been bitten by this tick? And usually it correlates pretty well. So in in the past, people kind of thought, oh, this is maybe something that naturally developed or maybe it was all in your head <laughs> because you're suddenly reacting to red meat. But uh, it's... It turns out it could actually happen, this this tick. And there's other ticks around the world that can also produce this type of allergy, but primarily in North America, it's the uh, Lone Star tick that hmm. actually causes this. So we should burn down the forests. Pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> so that we get rid of the arachnids, all of them. Ticks, spiders, get rid of them. Burn it. We don't need it. <laughs> I can't be the only one who's seeing a real upside to this tick. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, I I just hate ticks. I actually had an encounter with one a few weeks no. ago when I was hiking. Um, did you get bit by a tick? No, I did not. Are you not. already allergic to red oh mammal no, meat? <laughs> no. I mean, I just, I don't know what it is. I just hate ticks. And I was hiking in the forest. And when I was walking out of the forest, I kind of did a, a tick check basically like look around my legs and when i looked at my leg there was one crawling up my leg and i immediately flicked it off and it's surprisingly difficult to stomp on the tick ticks are so oh, i heard they're squishy and rubbery that they don't squi- uh... exactly they're really flat and squishy i'm just like oh my god it's not dying yeah <laughs> it's you have, have to be me. <laughs> torn apart more or less yeah. to be killed so oh they're god. durable they're scary yeah so um uh, it's to a point now where, I mean, anytime I go hiking now, I have a uh, tick removal tweezer with me because <laughs> I just, I cannot, 
I cannot deal with this. <laughs> That's why I don't go hiking. Yeah. So uh, don't go into the woods, folks. So quickly, in terms of you know, how do you protect yourselves? Uh, DEET works really well, or any, pretty much any uh, like insecticide or insecticide spray that you would use for mosquitoes works really well. Simple things uh, like when I go hiking now, it's long pants, and I uh, tuck my pants into my socks so that there's no way they can get in there. And I tuck my shirt into my pants to try to like create barriers. And so I'm I'm super paranoid now about like when I go hiking, I like fully cover up because I'm just like I do not want to deal with it. I don't blame you. Um, and the 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 only thing I'm a little bit mad about is there's there is one one insecticide spray that uh, in the U.S. it's available. And basically you spray on your clothing, uh, not on your skin, just on your clothing. And when the tick uh, lands on your clothing, the tick will actually die <laughs> because this insecticide will uh, affect the tick. Now, what's strange about this insecticide is in Canada, you can't buy the spray, but you can buy clothing that has been treated by the spray. So it's makes me kind of mad because I was like anywhere else in the world you can get this except for Canada and I feel like in Canada we have so many ticks this is like <laughs> it, it's basically there, there are some like health uh, organizations that are trying to like get the government to like approve this because it's like the easiest way to like prevent tick bites but it's not unfortunately the spray is not approved in Canada. I think we need a petition started right now. I know. You can see I'm, I'm very passionate about like fighting ticks and I just <laughs> I really want the government just approve this so that you know we can protect ourselves similarly there are pills that dogs can take that um will protect them so when a tick bites them it will die or mosquitoes as well they have that as well i am very i don't know i i honestly i haven't treated my dog with a tick pill just because she also is being treated for hookworms and i feel like i'm dousing my dog in chemicals and i fear that i'm just gonna i don't know She's going to OD on these chemicals. <laughs> no. Yeah. Well, stay yeah. away. Uh, the other thing, stay away from long grasses. Mm-hmm. So that's uh, ticks love to just like stand on grasses and like stick its legs up waiting for you to brush by. And Dogs have this horrible. really unfortunate habit of when they need to use the washroom, they like to plow themselves oh, into right. the long grasses too. So mm-hmm. they're like made to be vulnerable to ticks. My dog loves the long grass. I just took her to the park today, and now I'm like, oh, I got to go and make sure she doesn't (laughs) have any ticks. You got to do a tick check. (laughs) I should be doing tick checks on my dog, but um, she's a black dog, and I find it very hard to do those. Yeah. And I don't want to feel a tick. I feel like if I feel a tick, I will will just freak out. I don't know what to do. I honestly don't know what to do. (laughs) So you got to pull it out. (laughs) But you're supposed to put salt on it, right? That salt. It doesn't work. Salt doesn't work? No. Oh. Salt won't work. You got to like get a tweezer and pull it out. Tweezers are the only thing. Yep. Because I'm because I fear because I know if you pull off the body, the head is still alive and still injecting. Yeah. So be, being an expert of ticks now, yeah, I, I'm <laughs> trusting Kenny on this topic. Uh, you got to take the tweezer and you got to like put it as close to your skin as possible, and you you're grasping the head and you're mm-hmm. kind of like wiggling the head and you got to like wiggle it straight out. Yeah. It's just so precise that I worry I won't do it properly. They're just really tiny. That's the only thing you got to like be careful. Unfortunately, dogs, they probably going to move around, but. My dog does not stay still. So this would be a difficult Mm. tick check. I might check her when I get home though. (laughs) (laughs) 
feel like I want to check myself, even though we're in a studio right now. <laughs> Make Trust sure me. there's no ticks. I, I just don't know what it is about ticks, but now when I go hiking, I'm just like constantly checking now. <laughs> even if I'm not anywhere near grass, it's just like... Well, if I had encountered a tick, I definitely would be so paranoid that I'd be checking. And it kind of it kind of sucks that now you have to wear long pants in this heated weather. Yeah. And maybe even long I would be wearing long sleeves, long pants. I would be putting on a scarf. <laughs> you you're gonna get a bee costume. <laughs> Just yeah. walk walk in the park. I think that's what I need. I'm afraid of bugs. I actually have a huge fear of bugs. So oh, really? I just need a bee costume. Okay. See, I, I'm totally fine with bugs. Like bees, anything. Like I'm totally fine with any bugs except for ticks. And centipedes. That's oh. my only thing. Oh. I can't deal with this topic. <laughs> <laughs> Kenny, this is minus 100 stars. <laughs> oh. Five star scales right out the window on this I'm one. I'm going to have nightmares tonight. You know, I have nightmares about bees. I have, I have nightmares about bees that are like eight feet tall and they're chasing me. So now I'm going to have nightmares about ticks that are like eight feet tall and chasing me. <laughs> Anyways, I was just fascinated by the meat allergy because it just that that, that just, is yeah it's just very strange to have a meat allergy right and it, just to develop just it. manifest as yeah. being bit by a tick it's so yeah. unique yeah so anyways protect yourselves use DEET use uh whatever the alternative to DEET is and then um yeah you'll be fine. I did put DEET on this morning when I took the dog to the park so I think oh, I'm did okay. you. Okay. Yes. Yeah, yeah. But fine. I did it mostly because the mosquitoes find me really easily. Yeah, mosquitoes love me. Mm-hmm. They love me too. I eat yeah. too much sugar. I think that's what it is. Yeah. Well, they just like Chinese food. That's what I think. So. <laughs> sugar and Chinese food. We're, we're doomed, Kenny. <laughs> yeah. So, anyways, so my rating now. Normally, I think if I didn't have this uh, hatred of ticks, I would have given it maybe like two and a half two stars because you know it's it's natural it's kind of it's there um but i'm gonna give it ecosystem i guess yeah part of the ecosystem but i'm gonna give it one and a half stars because i hate it (laughs) and and i mean really i only blame ourselves because of climate change i mean climate change is what's really driving the ticks up north and uh we need to solve climate change because i do not want to deal with these ticks anymore absolutely so I'm giving it one and a half stars. I'm going to flip your rating on its head and say that uh, the horror stories you've told me have risen my horror rating up to four. It would be five, except that I acknowledge the beneficial factor of removing mammal consumption (laughs) that this particular tick brings, but four on the horror scale. Oh, man. It's like the negative a million stars. I (laughs) hate bugs. I'm afraid of them. I don't. I want. I think we should burn down the forest. (laughs) Sherry would trade the forest. (laughs) Climate change. I don't care. We're burning it down. (laughs) Whenever people post those pictures of like spider nests and stuff, I'm like, "Yep, burn it. Yep, burn it down." (laughs) Fire's the only solution here. My house has a spider in it. Burn it. (laughs) (laughs) We're moving. Just burn this place down. We're burning. So you're never moving. You're never visiting Australia, right? No, never, never leaving Canada, please. Because <laughs> in Australia, every insect wants to kill you, <laughs> and they're equipped yes. to do so. That's more scary. Yes, my friend was born in Africa. He told me about a spider that eats birds. 
eats birds. Yeah. It eats it, birds. It exists. It's a spider and it eats birds. So that's crazy. So I don't want to go anywhere that there are <laughs> things like that. I mean, Canada is bad enough. I see like little da- daddy long legs in my grass and I freak out. So I'm Burn okay. it. Burn, Burn the grass. <laughs> Burn it. <laughs> So it's, I mean, I get it. I get that there's like an ecological purpose to bugs. I understand logically that bugs are necessary, that spiders eat flies and other bugs that I don't want. And when I had little ants coming in my house, there's a little spider in the corner and I left him because he ate all my ants. But I also tried to give them chemicals to die. So, But you know what's a very efficient source of protein? Insects. Ah, bringing it back around. Bring it to right back around. But I watch fried. nature shows, and when they eat bugs, I cringe. But you, I mean, if you want a really good, sustainable source of protein, I mean, insects is the way to go. I mean, tough to beat. Yeah. And you can go online and order. And you want to talk about insects. a renewable resource. Exactly. Bugs are going to take care of that with their 5,000 eggs that they lay and exactly. one blood meal. Exactly. So you two are eating bugs. I'm okay starving. And you're burning the forest. <laughs> I'm going to burn it, but I, I'm okay starving. If it's between bugs and starving, I might just starve. I'm going to... You'll gonna, learn to love it, Sherry. Yeah, I'm going to link you to a website of where you can buy like uh, uh, mealworms and crickets. You can like grind it up and make uh, cookies. If it's indistinguishable as bug... Like, there are no cartilages or exoskeletons left to be consumed. I love the expression I got there. Um, Okay. Why don't I I make, like, some cookies out out of, like, like ground-up grasshoppers? And let's see if you can tell a difference. You never eat anything that you make. Okay, got it. Bringing the cookie jar next session. No. no, The next next potluck. Burning it. Next potluck. The next potluck, summer potluck, when you won't remember this conversation. Burning your cookies. <laughs> I'm not eating anything you ever make ever. This is a horrible threat to do. Oh man. Okay. Well, I think I think we can end this. It was pretty can good. We... I, I like the positive note we we reached with the the cricket cookies. It was good. Exactly. Cricket cookies and burning the forest down. I love it. Can I? reference just for maybe any further reading that you want to do on GSA somewhere that I got a lot of information from where there was a really good art a really good article I guess I could say but thesis that somebody did called gay straight alliances and student activism in Ontario public sector and Catholic high schools so we'll just link to that it was a study done in uh, 2018 and it's really good so it's good for further reading on my topic at least And I would like to say happy Pride. This is coming out after Pride, but Pride is coming up this weekend and Hala is walking in Pride. So if you're not walking with us, maybe go to our website and check out some of the pictures that we will post uh, from Pride. I know, Kenny, you're going to be there taking lots of photos. I won't be this year because I'm going to be with my wife's family. Uh, I can think of nothing gayer to do than than hang out with my wife. So <laughs> that's where I'll be. I'll be very sad this year. It's been many years since I've missed a Pride. But happy Pride, everyone. Happy Pride. And look, there's cricket powder that you can order online. Oh, gosh. <laughs> so Kenny's going to start some baking. Look, crickets have 2.2 times more iron than spinach. How about that? Oh, well, anyways, I'm going to go order some crickets, and I guess we'll chat next time. So see you later, everyone. Till next time. Bye. Bye.
I almost brought a girl to prom, but then decided against it because I knew my school was very religious and I just didn't want to didn't want to deal with it. So I decided not to. Also, the girl I was going to bring was a bit of a fool. 